Bibles with you, please open up to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. This is one of those um, passages that's really hard to preach, not necessarily because of the material, but because there's just so much involved. We're going all the way from chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 9, verse 17. And so normally I would come up here and read the entire text, but I think if I do that this morning, I think we'll take up most of our time uh, with that. And so uh, we're going to be highlighting uh, certain verses that, uh, that show up and the themes that uh, come with uh, what is going on in the story of Noah's Ark. Uh, a very familiar story uh, to many of us if we've grown up in the church or have been in the church for any length of time. And so hopefully today sheds a new light on what God was doing. He wasn't just writing a children's story. He was uh, telling us something about Jesus. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll see what, uh, what he has for us this morning. He- <coughs> Excuse me. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for this day. Again, we pray that your spirit would come and that you would help us in our weakness, in our inability to see you clearly and that we would indeed behold the riches and the treasures and the wealth of Jesus Christ. Would we claim him as our own, and would we find, Lord, that he has claimed us as his own on the cross. And it's in Jesus' matchless name that I ask this. Amen. You know, when I was a kid, uh, we used to uh, play a lot of what's called pickup games. You know, a pickup game is basically when you just get a bunch of neighborhood kids or friends together and you start playing soccer or baseball or, or street hockey or whatever it is. And whether it was in our backyard or in our driveway or uh, at the park down the street or maybe just meeting up with friends at, a, at one of the neighborhood ball fields, uh, we were just spending a lot of our free time playing pickup games. And uh, one thing that we would do is that we would always pretend that we were in the big leagues. And so we would always go up there and announce who we're pretending to be. Um, and, uh, and so we would go up there and we'd, we'd try to perfect our skills. And when we would mess up, we would shoot out this, this famous childhood phrase that many of us have used before. And it's that phrase, redo, right? When we would miss a fly ball or if we would miss the ball that we're swinging, uh, swinging to hit or whatever it was in order to cover our tracks or perhaps do a better job, we would say, oh, redo, redo. And so uh, when children play like that, it's interesting when you kind of analyze that they're, they're not just being kids, but rather they're, they're tapping into something that is uniquely human. It's just their, their innocence at their young age shows it so, uh, so brilliantly. Uh, deep in the recesses of every human heart is this cry that desperately wants to say, redo, and redo the things that they have, have done, uh, whether it's an experience that didn't turn out the way that we planned, or whether it was the words that came out that we that we didn't mean or that we really didn't want to uh, say. Maybe it's that sin that we committed or that action that hurt someone that we wish we could just, maybe not call it a redo, but we call it a take back. We wish that we could take that back. And how many of us in our hearts have said redo in one way or another uh, throughout our lives? 
the natural inclination of regret is something that, that undoubtedly you and I, we, we've all faced. And in this passage this morning, there's a sense in which God shares in that sentiment. Here's a God that created all things, and, and especially humans as the, the pinnacle of creation, <clears throat> to be perfect in morality and to be perfect in uh, relationship with Him. But yet He sees all this wickedness and He sees all this uh, moral rebellion against His will. And in chapter 6, God essentially says, redo. But the difference being is that when we say redo, it is to, to fix a mistake that we've made. Or it's to, to fix something that we wish could have been done uh, a, a little bit better. And when it comes to God, uh, God's cry is for the benefit of His people. Through the regret of God uh, and His ensuing judgment against sin, God is saying, redo. But essentially what He is saying is that I'm going to begin something new. Our text shows new beginnings continue in His kingdom here on earth. And it shows a new beginning both on a global scale, but more specifically, it shows new beginnings in individuals like me and you. God wants to make a new beginning in your life and in your heart this morning. And if you follow along with me on your outline, we'll see three ways in which he wants us to experience this new life. And the first thing is that he wants us to do is we need to take heed of the warning. Take heed of the warning signs that are, that are within these passages. In order to get at the good news of a new beginning, it's essential that we see the reason why we actually need a new beginning. And it's up to this point in Genesis that I feel like a broken record up here because every week I feel in one way or another, uh, I, I reiterate the point that God sees that we have created a mess of our lives through various actions and words and, and, and thoughts. And God has his, his just judgment upon it. Now look with me in verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, that is simply a reiteration that happened just a few verses earlier in, in verse 5, where it says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it is as if God looked on the earth, and he sees not just actions that was happening but also it points to the heart. It points to the motivations. Those things deep inside of our soul that cause us to say the things we do, think the things we do, and say the things that we do. And so the question is, what qualifies God to be such a judge? Who is He to file a complaint against us? 
Now, if you remember in chapter 1, in the very first verse in the entire Bible, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And when you look at Genesis 1-1, there is no bigger or better qualification for anyone to judge what happens in this world but him who owns it, him who created it all. It is his world. He judges it as he sees fit. You are his. The ground that, that we are on right now is his. The trees are his. The snow is his, like it or not. It is all his. In fact, Psalm 50 verse 10 says that the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. And what God is talking about here is not that just within 1,000 hills, every cattle that's in it are his. It's, it's a scope of the worldwide um, collection of everything. This world is God's. In fact, not only is he the creator God, but he's also holy. In all of the Psalms, uh, many of them, God is proclaimed as being holy. And not only is he just uh, uh, holy, but he's also sovereign. In Psalm 115, verse 3, the psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now notice, however, in this text that there is sort of, I, I don't think this is a word, but it's the only way I can describe it. There is decreation language happening here. Uh, I guess you could say uncreation language, but that just sounds worse. Uh, decreation language. In chapter 6, verses 5 and 12, it essentially says, God saw. God saw the wickedness that was going on. It, it appeared to him. It, it, was, it was plainly obvious to him. And it should remind us of Genesis chapter 1 when he looked over all of his creation. And what does it say? He saw that creation was good. This is a seeing God. He blessed it there. But here God is seeing only wickedness. In chapter 6, verse 6, we, we read about how God felt about this. This is what, what we talked about last week. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him. Whereas in the creation account, it pleased him. He was very pleased with the work that he had done. There is this emotional change on the part of God. And notice that God also planned what he was going to do in verse 7 of chapter 6. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. Now, jump down to verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Then verse 17, it says, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. That's a pretty serious statement. It's a direct contrast compared to what God had planned to do all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. Most notably, that God, he put, uh, he put humans in his image. No other, no other uh, uh, beast or creation has that. And so God saw, he felt, and then he planned. And now in verse 10, God did. Look at verse, uh, starting in verse 10 of chapter 7. And after seven days, 
the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, it's pretty specific, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. That's just fabulous imagery. And the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so I, I've lived in Minnesota for most of my life. I'm 37 right now. I spent about seven years outside of Minnesota. So I, I guess you could say that I've lived in Minnesota for 30 years, many of you uh, for a few years longer than that. And I have never seen it rain 40 days and 40 nights. It maybe snowed and it's been cold for 40 days and 40 nights, but it hasn't been... Uh, you know, even when you think about that seven inches that we got in a couple hours last summer, uh, it was nothing compared to 40 days of that. Can you imagine seeing what we saw last summer extended out for 40 days? I think it was in 1987 um, that they had this thing called the Superstorm. Does anybody remember that? It's where it rained buckets for like days, and uh, after a while it, uh, it subsided. But the extent of the flood here in chapter 7 is far worse than that. Look in verse 17. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. You know, as a kid, we went to Colorado for a vacation. And uh, I got to go on this adventure to take a trolley car to go up to the top of Pikes Peak. Has anybody ever been to the top of Pikes Peak before? You have. Okay, a couple of you. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning up there. Um, and if you get a chance to visit, it's, it's certainly not the highest mountain in America. In fact, I believe it's only about 14,000 uh, or so feet, but still it's pretty high. And here the text is saying that the waters covered every single mountain uh, for, what does it say, 15 cubits deep. Do you know what, what a cubit is? A cubit's essentially the measurement from your elbow up to your fingertip, and obviously that's a little, you know, subjective because some of us have shorter arms and some of us have longer arms, but it's a good measure, 18 inches or, or so, if you want to put it that sort of way. And if you did the math, you're talking about 22 and a half feet higher than the highest mountain that this flood had come over and everything on earth was killed. If you notice that in, in chapter 7, starting in verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now, there was this, there was this girl that Julie and I knew uh, a number of years ago who had apparently once mentioned to her, and, and probably foolishly, uh, while looking at a flooded river, saying, golly, that looks like a lot of fun to swim in. I think that would be uh, a great thing uh, to do because it looks really peaceful. And indeed, if you see a flood, it does look peaceful to a certain extent. Um, but 
underneath that peaceful exterior, something sinister is happening. Many of you would remember back in 1997 that the Red River made national uh, news for the flooding uh, that happened up there. The Red River is the river that separates the border between northern Minnesota and, and uh, North Dakota. Uh, it starts out in, um, in the Bois de Sioux River. It meets up with the Otter Tail River, and it, it's sort of a unique river because it travels north rather than, than south, which most rivers uh, flow down, but not the Red River. Uh, and because of unusually high amounts of snow in that winter, don't, you know, don't pay attention to what just happened last night and how much snow we've gotten, but it also had unusually high heat early on in the spring, and the snow melted much faster than expected, and the flood water uh, came very quickly, and they were expecting that the flood stage would reach 49 feet, and they were expected, uh, they were ready for that, they had sandbags that could have held back those uh, floodwaters, but the river didn't crest until 54 feet, which left southern Manitoba and uh, uh, Grand Forks and parts of Fargo just completely decimated and underwater. Now, if you go to the internet and you look at pictures or you look at videos of this flood from the air, to a certain extent, it looks somewhat peaceful. It looks calm. But underneath, there's currents of disaster that is happening. Currents that run so fast that it will destroy anything in its path. And that is the result of a major flood. A flood is deceptively terrifying. Unless preparations are made, it has the potential to end life. And the flood in this story just doesn't cover the Red River. It, it covers the entire world. So if 1997 was any indication of what the potential destruction of a flood is, imagine what that would be like on a global scale. 22 and a half feet higher than Mount Everest, which happens to be uh, just under 30,000 feet high. That's a lot of water. Nothing escapes it. We can't even imagine it. Now, chapter 9, verse 11, God promises, and thankfully, that he will never again judge the world through a flood. However, Scripture does point to the fact that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. We see that in Acts chapter 17, 31. And as we saw last week, that day will be completely unexpected. Uh, in Matthew 24, Jesus actually looks back on this uh, massive worldwide flood and says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Peter then picks up on this idea in 2 Peter chapter 3 and says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly." So in a sense, there is the same thing that's happening now in the minds and the hearts of people that were happening at the same time as Peter when he wrote this. That people are just going about their days thinking that life is the same as it has always been. Obviously, we, we, we change as a culture, but hey, you know, ever since our fathers and our ancestors have been here, everything is generally the same. Where is Jesus like he has said he's been coming? It isn't happening Everything is the same as it's always been. But 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this. He says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the, the world of the ungodly. And so the point here is that Noah was a preacher. That he was a herald and he was proclaiming this coming judgment by building the ark for what seems like a 120 years or so. He is building this ark. And so today, we must also, as Noah did, not shy away from the fact that judgment is coming in our proclamation of the gospel. This is not a, uh, a judgment that just uh, says, you need to get your act together because Jesus is coming, but rather it is a proclamation that says, Jesus has gotten it all done for you. Trust in him. When I was in college, uh, just shortly after I had gotten saved, um, okay, I had five earrings in my two ears, okay? And uh, these, these two, uh, what we would call hellfire preachers, came to our campus one day, and they were creating somewhat of a ruckus, as they normally do. They created a great crowd, which is not hard to do when you're, you know, that sort of, uh, of a bend. And um, it was interesting because um, I can remember them going from person to person saying, you, well, you're going to hell for the way that you're dressed. That hairstyle over there, you're going to go to hell for that. And then he looks at me. I didn't even do anything to him. And he says, son, you have earrings. You're definitely going to hell. Okay, fair enough. Um, this is not the kind of judgment that we preach. This is not the gospel. We preach a judgment out of warning because of love. We see the desperate need in our friends, in our family, in the people that we work with, the people that we interact with. And it is not, your glasses don't look right, you're going to go to hell, but it's the fact that we have broken God's laws and his just judgment is against us, but yet he loved us so much that he sent Jesus on our behalf. And so now is the time to repent. 
Now is the time to believe. Now is the time to trust. Because God's patience is with us right now. And as the ark of judgment rose over and above all of creation, and it was higher than the highest mountain, so great is God's love for us that Psalm 36 tells us that your steadfast love, O Lord, reaches above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. There is no judgment that can rise above what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Which leads us to our second point, And that is that we must find new life in God's grace. Find new life in God's grace. Right away in chapter 6, uh, we, we should see that though this judgment is going to come, Noah was a righteous man. It calls him blameless in his, in his generation and that he walked with God. And when we look at this, these chapters, we shouldn't just look at this as a children's story where cute and furry little animals go and have a slumber party for a few months. We should see here that God's judgment is so sweeping, and the surprising part of it is, not that God judged the entire world here, but that He saved anyone. That He decided to... um, prefigure the Bible's idea of what we call divine election. And the result was that Noah was a blameless man because of God's grace. God's favor is shown in that he was warned about the judgment and how to avoid it. Grace, friends, is when we heed the warning of judgment Because God doesn't have to warn us. He doesn't owe us anything. He's the creator God. We typically think of these warnings as as downers. But it's an act of grace. It's an act of love. He gives Noah grace in the warning. And how does Noah respond? He responds in faith. Whenever God does his part in showing grace, we need to do our part by responding in faith. And how does Noah's faith, how is it demonstrated? Well, both in in chapter 6, verse 22, and chapter 7, verse 4, they, they echo each other. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him to do. He built an ark in the desert. This is an ark that, if you do the math right, is about two football fields in length in the desert. That takes faith. Folks, we live in a day and an age right now where increasingly our faith looks ridiculous to the world. Our faith is irrational. Our faith is 
is unmodern, is unscientific, and on the wrong side of history, that to believe in the Bible today is sort of the equivalent of building a huge boat in the middle of Death Valley, thinking that a flood is going to come. That is how we are increasingly being looked at. But as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we seem to preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Habakkuk backs this up by saying, The righteous shall live by his faith. And friends, that doesn't put us in a better position. That doesn't mean we're better than anyone else. It it doesn't mean that we can boast over people or think that we are better than they are. Satan has blinded their minds, as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us. It's not as if we've learned something that they haven't. It's not as if we have some sort of education and now we are okay Friends, there are a lot of people who are not saved that know their Bibles better, that know their theology better than we do, but yet their heart remains hard. It is not something to be proud over. It is something to have compassion over. We find that the result of God's judgment now is detailed in chapter 7 in verses 21 through 24. But in that judgment, there is grace. And the result of God's grace is Noah's faith in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and made the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Now, that would be something... That if you're an underliner of your Bible, you like to write in your Bibles, this is where you would uh, mark your Bible. It's not as if God, the creator of the world here, forgot about Noah, and all of a sudden he's been so busy with this water, so busy trying to get this all set. Wait, I had this really big boat floating over by Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Oh, no, he doesn't forget. What it means to remember is to set his sights, to set his focus, and now uh, put what his plan is on this person of Noah. And God will remember you as well. If you are trusting, if you have faith in Christ Jesus, he will set his focus on you And his purposes for your life will become more real. 
So what does it mean to have faith or trust in Christ? It is to know that God is holy. It's to know that God is, is righteous. It's to know that he's just, that every single one of us are like the people of chapter 6, verse 6 and, and 15, that all of our ways, our thoughts, our intentions are, are, are only evil all of the days. It is to know Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, which says that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless and, and does, uh, no one does good, not even one. And it's to understand Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is to recognize that we deserve God's just judgment of hell and separation from his goodness throughout eternity. But faith then is to look upon the cross of Christ and God's plan for rescue. Rescue is not just coming. Rescue has come in the person of Jesus. That in his death he bore our punishment on, his, on our behalf. It is in his death that he took the wrath for us. Now just as Noah's ark rose above the waters of God's judgment, so the cross then is our ark that rises above God's judgment. And we are brought safely to those who cling to the cross. We are brought safely through those terrifying waters of God's wrath and will be delivered unto dry ground. Oddly enough, this is why we as a Baptist church practice baptism by immersion. It symbolizes that when we are submerged underwater, we are identifying with that judgment of of, uh, Christ on our behalf. In his death, we die. His death is our death. Our death is his death. And when we are brought up out of those waters, it is symbolizing that we have been safely brought back into life and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. All in this beautiful symbolism. It's exactly what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now get this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Well, we could get into a long debate about that. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not as if the baptism waters are cleansing you. It's not like a sort of a weird bath. It's it's a symbolism of the cleansing that God has done of our hearts and the new life that God has given us. I've had many people that have baptized tell me that they're afraid to go through the act of baptism because it's scary to be dunked underwater. And my response to that is, that's the point. 
It symbolizes death. And nothing can be more horrific than someone plugging your nose and dunking you down and bringing you back up. But as a result of faith is this new beginning. Look in chapter 8, verse 17. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So we have not heard these words for a while, but again, notice how God is now telling Adam to essentially do what he told Adam and Eve to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Here we see that God is starting all over again with Noah. And when we have faith in God, he starts all over with us again. We have new life. We have new hope. We have new purpose. We have new vision. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ this morning, you are not who you used to be. And that is some of the best, not some of, that is the best news that you can hear all day, all week, in your entire life. You're not who you once were. You may struggle with some things, but when God looks at you, He looks at you in the righteousness of Christ. Many of you might be here and you're thinking, I'm just struggling with this or that, and it just seems like there's no end. But God's grace says, I've got you, and I'm going to lead you safely through. We're going to get you through this every single day. We're working to conform you to be to the image of my son. He makes new beginnings, and he makes them with you through faith. Thirdly and finally, we need to respond in worship. Respond in worship. Look with me in chapter 8, verse 20. Noah came out of the boat. The text says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I, I tend to believe that this is sometime after he got off the boat. It's not like he came out and just started hacking away at these animals because they did need to repopulate themselves a bit. But so after God found favor with Noah, after he'd been delivered through judgment, what did Noah do? He worshiped, right? This is how people in the Old Testament showed their worship and their devotion to God. It was through this this worship. When we experience the grace of God, it should be natural for you and I to worship. It should be our first inclination to extol God, to give him praise and glory for his excellent greatness as the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything, as the saving God, the redeeming God, the sanctifying God. It is to thank him with sacrifices, not of dead animals, but the sacrifice of your life, your heart, your mind, your soul, your lifestyle, your possessions, everything is meant to be in praise and service to the Lord. The problem is, is that we often forget. We forget to praise Him, and we need to continually remind ourselves of the gospel, what we were delivered from, how we were delivered from it, who we were and who we are now in Christ. 
And we need to fight with every fiber of our being to praise him all the time. It's too easy to revert back and worshiping lesser things to go back and think that we can do all of this on our own. We can't. We need God. We need God's grace. We need to fight to praise God every, every minute until we find our satisfaction and our joy in Him, and then we need to keep praying some more. And when you and I find a good thing, we tend to glory in it, right? Uh, any of you that have had children, you've seen this before, that when they get a gift for Christmas or a birthday, and what do they want to do? They want to show it off, Right? Everyone that comes around the house, if they bring it out of the house, look at this, look at that. Any creation they make. How many of us parents have ever heard a million times? And it's a great thing to hear. Uh, Mommy or daddy, come and look at this. Check this out. Look what I did. They are proud and they are glorying in what they did. And as adults, we're not that much different, right? Hey, check out this new car I got. Check out this new guitar I got. Check out this, you know, whatever it is. We just enjoy showing the things that we, that we love. But how often do we highlight the goodness of God in our lives? How often do we display what he has done for us in our lives to other people and the conversations that we have? God's given us new life. He's given us grace. He's given us mercy. He's done everything. Should this not be the first thing that's out of our mouths? That God is great and that he is worthy to be praised? What is he doing in your life? Instead, all these other things consume our conversations. Boy, that was a lot of snow today. Uh, Oh, I had to shovel a lot today. You know, not that those things are bad. Those things are good to talk about. Conversations are good. But it's good to extol the Lord. There's no one like him. There's no one that can compare to him. He alone is God and worthy of our praise and worship. When we see the extent of our sin and the extent of God's goodness, how can we not praise Him? Are you praising Him this morning? Are you giving Him every part of your life? Are you praising Him in the easy times as well as the difficult times? Are you thanking Him? The grace of God ought to permeate every aspect. It ought to shine uh, light into every room in your spiritual house. Is it doing it? Let me challenge you this week, and me myself as well, starting today, to ask yourself the same question over and over again. How does the gospel speak to my situation right now? And what has the gospel overcome in my situation right now when I'm frustrated about whatever's going on? How the gospel affects you, if you answer it correctly in your heart, should change your day. It should change your week. It should change your homes. It should change your very lives. We live in a world that constantly wants over, do-overs and redos. We rebrand ourselves, maybe with a different fashion sense, maybe with a different location. We try to give ourselves new jobs, new so- social circles, new cars, um, new friends. We want to make ourselves new in every single way 
that we can. We try to rebrand ourselves to convince ourselves um, of something that we can't do. Friends, there's only one way to a new you. And it doesn't come through a, a series of various steps. There's only one way to a new you. And that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is Him alone that makes us new people. This flood looks forward to it. And we can glory in it. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And glory be to God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with burdens and different situations, heavy things in our hearts. And we want to ask, God, that you would continue to make us new. That we would, if we have trusted in Christ previously, that we would see and live out what it is that you're changing in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, we want to ask if there's anyone here that has not yet received you, that they would cling to you, that they would trust in you, and that they would experience the joy of a new life in Jesus Christ. Does that mean it's going to be easy? No. But Lord, when you are walking every step with us, it's okay and it's good. And so, Father, would you today help us to have faith that you have new beginnings for us. Would we trust in Christ and would we go joyfully into whatever it is that you have for us today. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, let's stand together and let's um, respond to God's word through song. Savior, say thy strength. 